Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the story of how and why rock and roll happened with Ed Ward and Nate Wilcox. This week, Ed Ward and I talk about 1960, a year when the American corporate brass thought they had tamed the rock and roll rebels of the 1950s. We'll discuss how Ray Charles and Sam Cooke took advantage of the opportunities presented to gifted performers who didn't frighten the establishment. And how to do that, they had to overcome the market-driven production ideas of the big record companies. We'll also be talking about James Brown's continuing struggles to seize the means of production, the Everly Brothers' move to Warner Brothers, and the Sun Records diaspora of artists like Roy Orbison, who left Sam Phillips and went on to bigger and better things. We'll also be talking a little bit about what was going on in England around this time. Be sure and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com to access the YouTube playlists and hear the music we're talking about. But now it's time to plug in those earbuds and hear what Ed has to say. Talking about 1960 today, not quite the backlash year of 1958, not the death year of 1959, but continuing consolidation by the major labels, crackdown on payola. The, I, I'd say the the Brill Building is pretty pretty uh, uh, ascendant at this point in time. Right now, what's happening is sort of the fire of rebellion has been quelled, or they think it has been. They being they being the the guys in charge, the you know, major the, labels. the the music industry, the entertainment industry establishment, the people who run our major radio networks, our television networks, who provide entertainment to most of the country, and and yet they're putting some money down on people that have been active leaders of the rebellions of the 50s. Ray Charles, for example, signs an enormous deal with ABC Paramount. That's unprecedented. I can't think, even Sinatra wasn't getting those kind of numbers. But ABC was was both desperate and, and far-looking. Um, they, they, they have their television network, and it's doing very, very well, but they don't have any content. It's, it's not like NBC, um, which is RCA, and Ed Sullivan, you know, where... You can just feed Elvis through the machine, and he comes out on the other end on your television screen with Ed Sullivan. Um, this this is a an entertainment empire with no um, music attached to it. There, ABC Paramount really was not a major label at the time, so of course, and they they offered the most important part of that was they offered Ray Charles seventy five percent of his own publishing, which is 
theoretically insane, but it worked out real good for everybody concerned because they were able to sell more records and thus they got lot more for their 25% than they probably would have otherwise. And I, I, I like that you noted that his valedictory single, or the last single he put out on Atlantic while he was still with Atlantic, was called I'm Moving On. Well, he didn't put it out. They did, and they didn't know at the time. It was just sort of like ironically... Uh, but, but the other thing is, that's a country song. And that presages the first thing he would do at ABC. He confounded all expectations and recorded not a single, but an album, which was called New Sounds in Country and Western Music. And it was Ray interpreting country songs as soul music. And with a big mammoth production. Right, and white backup singers. And it was, it was so bizarre but it worked totally. It, I mean, this was something Middle America was ready for, which is astonishing. Yeah, he kind of uh, takes country music and presents it to mainstream America, not well, the country audience. But He's showing them it. that there's good songwriting there. You know, he takes Harlan Howard's Born to Lose, which um, I'm trying to remember who did that uh, as a country song, uh, uh, had a hit with it. But he does it as a as a blues, as, as a African-American lament, born to lose, and now I'm losing you. Wow, that's a pretty universal statement, and it doesn't need a steel guitar behind it to get its message over. Yeah. You just need Ray Charles's voice, which is considerably harder to find than a steel guitar. And he also has a mammoth hit with George on my mind. Did he? Yeah, I think that was first. I was going to correct myself. He takes this old uh, Hoagie Carmichael um Standard. Still oh, standard, but it's also sort of a cliche. It had been done by everybody because everybody knew it had a good melody and had good lyrics, but not everybody could put it across the way Ray did. Um, I remember hearing that on the radio. This is right after I started listening really seriously to rock and roll as a kid and just being devastated by that record. You know, it's like I said in the book, you know, by the, by the end of the three minutes and however many seconds, you know, you miss Georgia too, even if you've never been there in your life. Yeah, and I mean, he, it's like he owns that song. Yeah. There's, there's not been another version since then, major version, because Ray just claimed that yeah, song. Yeah, how could you possibly beat that? I, I, I think there are a lot of singers who are ready to slice, slice their wrists open. <laughs> um, once Ray Charles got loose and stopped doing pure rhythm and blues and started becoming, actually, you can't even really call him a pop singer because he wasn't really in competition with you know Sinatra and Tony Bennett and those people. He was Ray Charles. Yeah, he just carved out his own big niche in the entertainment ecosystem and occupied it throughout the 60s and 70s all the way into his death yeah and uh, yeah. you know hard to argue with that and especially with the body of work he'd already done with atlantic i mean you can't say this guy didn't invest in artistic innovation after a, a decade of basically inventing soul music been on the forefront of r&b and this is like a victory lap for it yeah and so, you know, the man taking over isn't all bad. And, and another act that signed with a big label this time was the Everly Brothers, who leave a cadence and go with Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers, another, another studio that um, they didn't have television, but they had a mammoth film business. And all they'd been doing, oh, you know, so let's have a record division, you know, whatever. But they didn't have anything but soundtracks. And, you know, film soundtracks, if you're not filming a musical, and they didn't, 
you know, who wants to hear more, you know, Dmitry Tiomkin? It's, <laughs> it's not like it's classical music. Um, it's not like it's even interesting. Yeah. Um, which is why uh, among record collectors, uh, those soundtrack records are worth so much money because they didn't sell. So there are very, very few of them available. And they thought, well, you know, we, we've got to get into pop music um, a lot harder. And, and the Everleys were up for sale. They they had the whole Nashville establishment behind them. They they were real cozy with Acuff Rose. And as Ray Charles was uh, demonstrating, that's an incredible source of great songwriters. Um, not just the ones from the past, but right now today, there are people at Acuff Rose that you can call up and have them write songs. Hey, we've just signed the Everly Brothers. Oh boy, maybe we can make a lot of money from this. And they did. And they... And they... Maintained a, on top of their aesthetic game for a couple more years after this. I mean, Kathy's clown matches. Oh yeah, that they've been doing. The, and it's but the other thing is that um, as I'm discovering, the Everly Brothers went for a long time making great records that nobody heard. Yeah, the the they did an album with the Hollies in '65 or '66. Really? Is, yeah. that, is that the, the uh, London? The London sound, the Everly Brothers, something like that. Yeah. But the Hollies wrote several of the songs and backed them up on that, and it's right. a really good album. And then the Roots album. In Roots is the one I was thinking of because I, I I that was right after I started getting records from Warner Brothers, uh, the Everly Brothers, and I put it on. It's it's magnificent. I don't think it's ever been reissued in its entirety, um, and it's not. Particularly, it's got good songs on it, but it's it works as a concept album too. Yeah, it's a solid piece, and it's available for streaming now. I, I don't know if they ever put it out on CD, but mm-hmm. but it's one you can get now, and it's well worth a listen. But yeah, the Everly's are a classic band that was basically killed career-wise by the Beatles. Right. And uh, uh, but they were doing great stuff in the early '60s, and, and to huge acclaim. And then a third artist that jumps to a major label is Sam Cooke, who leaves Keen. Although they keep having hits on him after he's gone to RCA. Well, he'd recorded so much stuff. Yeah, it's once again stuff in the can as yeah. it was with Atlantic and Ray Charles. And uh, one of the things in the can was Wonderful World, which he'd co-written with Herb Albert and Lou Adler. Right, right. Become '60s Los Angeles music biz. Well, they were they were real hustlers. I mean, A and M Records started up not uh, too far past that, and that was uh, Herb Albert and, and Jerry Moss, who was. Uh, a good friend of Alan Freed's. So it's, you know, it's a new establishment of, of very young people is beginning to form at this point. Um, not just performers. Performers, there will always be teenagers who want to write songs but um, or, or sing songs. But um, as far as the business is concerned, a lot of really young people are starting to get into it. Phil Spector is one. Uh, but, but, you know, Herb Alpert is, is another. And... Um, and so is Lou Adler, who uh, was like a teenage hustler in the music business. What do you need done? I can do it, kind of thing. Yeah, and they're going to make their mark in a big way with. The but but the, the thing that and... that that uh, Sam Cooke is also doing is he's invoking the spirit of the civil rights era by um, uh, forming his own production company, SAR Records, S-A-R, which he's doing with J.W. Alexander, who is a member of the Pilgrim Travelers, which is yet another um, forward-looking gospel group. I mean, J.W. had no illusions about being a holy man. He he was a businessman, and part of his business was getting the travelers out on the right programs and making money with it. 
And the other part was he, he sees this kid who came up in gospel, who he'd shared the stage with many, many, many times. And he was the one who told Sam, you know, if, if you want to go pop, go pop, but you can't do it under anything but your own name. And uh, so JW and Sam are, are working to get artists signed to SAR. And they, this contract that Sam signs with RCA is limited because his idea is to make himself a big star and then whatever it takes to get away from them and make SAR a major source for African-American talent played by, produced by, engineered by black people, which Sam was really onto that. Well, I think that was his gospel background. You know, he was very clear about some things, less clear about others. Yeah, uh, and and he struggles with Hugo and Luigi, the team that RCA puts him with, uh, to produce the first thing they come out of the gate with is Teenage Sonata, which is a very earnest I was listening to it last night. It's a pretty song, but you can just sort of hear the flop sweat on it compared to the just effortlessness of the best thing. And, and yeah, stuff. and you can you can hear the machinations of the market behind it. You know, let's write a song that's got um, that we can orchestrate. So we'll call it a sonata, and then teenage. You know, it's like so plotted in advance. There's no spontaneity at all. And if a gospel trained performer knows anything, it's spontaneity. Yeah. And so, yeah, so Sam is going, how the hell do I get out of this? <laughs> but then he comes back with Chain Gang, which is a, sort of a strange song, but it's one, you know, he was touring the South and saw people working on a Chain Gang, right. wrote it, and classic. Yeah. So, it, well, I think Hugo and Luigi weren't entirely um, knowledgeable about this guy that they'd been assigned. And so they had to work out some sort of middle road so that both their instincts and Sam's instincts came into play in the studio. Yeah, and so he's he's cooking in 1960. He's going to keep finding his path over the next few years before he's tragically killed in 64. But another guy who's struggling with his record company is James Brown, <laughs> 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 who has to go to great lengths to get out a record on a dance craze, he sees chemical to match potato. Right, he's he's off in 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 Florida, and he's looking. It looks like every single person on the floor is stomping out a cigarette. And so, in in the break, you know, he asks somebody, "What is that?" And I go, oh man, don't you know that? That's a mashed potato. That's the latest thing. And so it's a new dance, and you know that immediately James, who's like the greatest dancer uh, in rhythm and blues, goes, "Ah, okay, we got to do this." And so he writes a song called "The Mashed Potatoes," and um, Sid Nathan, who's the head of his record label, refuses to put it out in the great Sam uh, uh, Sid, Nathan. Uh, Sid Nathan tradition, <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, so uh, James is just convinced that this is a hit, so. He signs not, well, he signs a weird contract with Mercury that allows him to put out instrumental albums because he plays the Hammond B3 organ during part of his show, things like Night Train and so forth. And since he's contracted as a vocal artist to King, he's not in violation of his contract. You know, if, if he could 
craft a string quartet out of the famous flames, then nobody could prevent him from signing with another label. So he puts out the mashed potato as by Nat, Nate Kendrick and the Swans, which um, Kendrick was his drummer at the time, I believe. And um, it's a huge hit. And what effect does this have on Sid Nathan? None. <laughs> and uh, I mean, but he, he does get some hits out on James around this period. They do a cover of the Five Rails Think. Yeah. And um, oh, what else was that year? Um, Let's see. Um, I, I didn't note it. Think was the one. But yeah, he had he had a couple others. And, and you talk about the search for the hit. I think he had to go to the B-side for one of them. Yeah. The thing is that, that he kept putting records out on Mercury um, for a number of years. Uh, I think he didn't actually, that the reconciliation didn't come until 1964. I'll go crazy. I'll go crazy, right. Which, um, I guess that was enough like his previous stuff that um, Nathan decided it was okay. But by the time the reconciliation came, uh, King was absolutely gutted. There was no nobody left on the label except for James, and um, it got put up for sale in 1964, uh, along with its publishing catalog. Um, and so James, I don't know exactly what happened yet, because I'm still doing the research, but when I finally got to King Records, it was still in the same building as it had been since the late 40s in, wow. in Cincinnati. And I walked in there, and there was a secretary and a desk, and that was it. And um, she said, oh, I said, you know, a friend of mine in California would like uh, any of the paperwork you can spare, especially promotional photos and things like that. She oh, we got rid of that. We saved the good stuff. We saved Steve Lawrence's first contract. <laughs> I said, well, you know, what about the rhythm and blues and country stuff? No, that's all gone. And as this was happening, a guy in the building had um, noticed that there was a visitor, probably because there was an, a car he didn't recognize in the parking lot. He came and he says, hey, she doesn't know anything. Come with me. It turned out, now I can't remember his name, he was James Brown's road manager. He was a white guy with red hair. And he took me into a room where <laughs> there was a, a girl in a... Um, emerald-colored uh, mini-skirt with a giant emerald set into her nose, sitting on a desk while a man counted $50 bills into a briefcase. And this was a completely different world. It was all black, except for my guide. And um, he turned out to be the head of James Brown Enterprises, as well as James's road manager. So that's what happened to King Records. And what year was that? Um... Uh, let's see. My guess would be 71, 72. 71. So James was at the peak of his powers, right? Right. Now. Yeah, so it was definitely... There was action going on in the building, but it was not on the King Records side. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and this... Sid Nathan struggles with James Brown in the 1960 period. It's all building to James basically seizing control and putting out recording and putting out the live album at the Apollo right. the next year. And, and from there, he basically takes over the company as you described. But, and a major part of the world. Yes. <laughs> and definitely sets the, the future course of music, you know, uh, onto the present day. But another thing that's going on in 1960 is 
the Nashville pop country sound is taking over the pop charts. Uh, which is why it was smart for, you know, uh, Warner Bros. to grab the Everly Brothers. Because, yeah, we, we had um, Roy Orbison. Um, Only the Lonely. On yeah, the I mean, there's this operatic stuff. That, there's no precedent for that. There was never, well, maybe Cry by Johnny Ray for this hyper-emotional thing. But that didn't stick. You know, he, he never had the staying power, but he also didn't have the Acuff Rose machine behind him. I can't remember. I should have written it down, um, and I, maybe I did. The name of the arranger that they used, they were definitely not going for country. There was no question of Orbison doing a country record. None. Yeah, it's very. Uh, it's a very unique sound, very powerful stuff. He had his own band recorded in the studio, unlike a lot of times where they were bringing session guys and he was writing a lot of the songs or co-writing the songs. And, you know, I was reading the Sam Phillips biography by Peter Goralnik, and one of the jokes they had with Roy, who was on Sun and did Ubi Doobie, was they would constantly tease him about how you're not going to make it as a ballad singer. He would tell him, I want to be a ballad singer. Right. And laugh, yeah, yeah, you're going to be a big ballad singer. Uh-huh. And so, uh, you know, uh, some amazing money left on the table by Sun Records there. Well, Sam just really didn't care by this point. He, he was into new things. His first love, no matter what he said during the period when he was printing money, um, his first love was radio. And... Given the choice between producing a new singer and opening a new radio station, hey, forget it. There was no choice at all. Yeah. And so that's what he was doing. He also was invested in Holiday Inn, which a friend of his came to and said, look, here's this thing. We, we do identical hotels. And I actually stayed in Holiday Inn number one right there on the river. Um, and I could see being real impressed if you were thinking of buying a franchise, you know, staying at this place with this commanding view of the uh, Mississippi River. I also met B.B. King downstairs. Oh, wow. There was a party of some sort. I can't remember. Yeah, and that was a great investment for Sam Phillips, but he left a lot of guys slipping through his fingers. Another guy that slipped through his fingers was Conway Twitty, who has a big hit in 1960 with Lonely Blue Boy. Right. And he wasn't even Conway Twitty when he was messing around, when he was cutting. He was Harold Jenkins. Yeah, he cut some records with Son, nothing was released. Yeah. Well, really? Oh, yeah. Right. Born to Sing the Blues only came out later. Yeah. And um, and he was headed towards pop success for a while too. Um, and and like it's really interesting that that you know going back into the mists of American popular music history, um, the first quote unquote country superstar was Vernon Dahlhart, who took his name from two Texas cities that he just randomly found on the map. Same with Conway Twitty. Yep, Conway and Twitty, two towns in Texas, which, uh, I mean, Texas has no end of crazy, goofy town Right. Names. And Conway, yeah, he had It's Only Make Believe was a big hit a couple of years earlier, and then Lonely Blue Boy in 1960, and then, so he established himself as a pop guy, but then he segues and just becomes a mammoth country artist for the next two decades. Right. Which is, you know, another possibility when you're de dealing with Nashville. I mean, it could be that he was uncomfortable with the pop stuff he was being fed or that there, he wasn't selling as many records. I mean, because there was still intense competition. We shouldn't forget that the overriding thing here is the baby boom coming up. So there were more teenagers than ever to buy your records. Yeah, and, and I think one attraction of country as an artist grew was that you could do more mature topics and you could sing about sex and adultery and divorce and things like that. Whereas 
that teen audience didn't want to hear that stuff. And so well, they didn't know how to process the information. Um, Chuck Berry steered very um, close to the edge with some of that stuff. With Memphis. Well, not just Memphis, you know, the, the, the 13 question method. Have you ever heard I that did. song? I just heard that this well, weekend. That's a dirty song. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. But some of this other country stuff, you know, Marty Robbins has an enormous hit with El Paso. Right. But that is, that's a country, um, a sort of, it, it's countrypolitan sort of avant la lettre. It, it, it's, it's before there was such a thing as countrypolitan. It's mainly um, Spanish guitar. the Spanish guitar and, and a minimal backup. But the, but this like flamenco stuff that's happening is, is very atmospheric. Plus, it's a long story. It's the, it was the longest single ever uh, released at the time that it, it came out. Yeah, and, and to me it, it ties in with you know what was going on with the folk room with uh, the Kingston Trio and, and stuff like that. It's a story song. It's a right, as ballad. was, you know, Tom Dooley was, was, a, was a ballad. And, and um, um, oh dear. Johnny Horton. Johnny Horton, hit. exactly. Yeah, he, started, Orleans. he started doing his history songs. And Sink the Bismarck, Bismarck was his history song for 1960, which right. wasn't as big as Battle of New Orleans. But and here's is. a guy who was all just right on the edge of being a rockabilly, you know, hardwood, honky-tonk hardwood floor, and I'm coming home. These are like really supercharged country things. Yeah, but he, he, he changed with the times and this narrative ballad thing. I really think that it has a lot to do with the, the huge success of the Davy Crockett Songs very much so, which, which was a, a fake folk ballad, you know, that they wanted to pass off as a, a folk song that had been written about Davy Crockett for the glorification of um, the, uh, well, Disney Corporation. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, got a lot of kids interested in history and coonskin caps and sold a lot of merchandise. But that wasn't the only thing going on with, with Country Paulton. You also had Jim Reeves. Right, very smooth style. He'll have to go and right, and, and there, there was somebody. Uh, he he was huge in Jamaica. <laughs> that is crazy. I couldn't, I couldn't, I never forget the first time I went into a major Jamaican record store, and had to fight my way through all the Jim Reeves and Leuven Brother albums there. The Leuven Brothers to find, yeah, to to find well harmony, yeah, you know, to to find the records I was actually looking for. Huh, that's crazy. That, that's uh, and, and but it's, it's crazy, but it, it's something that you find, you know, as these multinationals. I mean, it's RCA. Yeah. Uh, uh, multinationals were trying to sell anything they could, anywhere they could. So you find these little cults of odd performers popping up in places like India, other parts of Africa. You know, it's yeah, it's like the uh, Searching for Sugar Man documentary or whatever yeah. with the, the guy that becomes big in South Africa. But around the same time, you also had this sort of ghoulish novelty song trend with Teen Angel and Tom Yeah, death, death Rock. Yeah, Teen Angel. The, the whole idea was, you know, you don't lose your girlfriend to another guy. You, you lose your girlfriend to death, which is... <laughs> Man, you, you might be able to talk her back away from the other guy, but you ain't going to talk her back from this. Yeah. Um, is Moody River also in this? I, mean, I remember listening to that on the radio and just going, God, I hate this song. You know, the, the girl drowns herself. Uh, you know. You must have been a great boyfriend, huh? <laughs> Jeez. But it's, it's one thing that's interesting about this little style is it's a huge inspiration on Joe Meek in England. Right. Who, who builds basically a whole career on 
tribute songs to dead rock and rollers, Buddy Holly and Eddie Cochran, uh, and and his own little morbid spin on things. But but, but it, and he does it all. I, his studio wasn't really a studio. He, he was doing it in his house. Yeah, he was. He had his reverb equipment that he built himself under his kitchen sink. Right. Right. Uh, is Telstar in nineteen sixty? No, that's sixty three. Oh, okay. Yeah. Never mind. Meek's coming on, but uh, just this this influence of this morbid death cult. But the other thing you talk about that was a big thing was Stereo and the LP. Right. Well, this this had been cooking since the early fifties when, when Fisher Electronics introduced very usable high fidelity equipment, but it was only in monophonic because that's all the well, actually, the idea of stereo um, hadn't really occurred to anybody until they started making really complex recordings of things like opera, you know, where, where it matters that this voice is on this end of the stage and that voice is on the other because um, it's part of the drama. A and they suddenly realized that for large ensembles, um, breaking up the sound like that might be a good idea. So um, I don't know how, when exactly, I mean, stereo appeared in the marketplace at a given point, but wh whose decision it was, whether it was the hardware manufacturers uh, or, to, or what to actually solve how with one needle you could create two channels and then press that into the record. But it did happen. And um, that was just revolutionary. Of course, the first stuff that came out that people heard was what you heard at the Hi-Fi store, which was things like Enoch Light and Provocative Percussion, these audio fidelity recordings of Formula One in Monaco. And, you know, you know listen to that. It sounds like the cars are just going around and around. Yeah, they are. <laughs> you, know, you really want to spend six ninety eight on this record of cars going? Yeah, people did. Yeah, some people, but it it got to be a much bigger thing. You know, when people like Frank Sinatra start doing stereo right. albums and and the Sound of Music, you talk about that. Yeah, yeah, the Sound of Music show. soundtrack. Well, that was stereo in the theater. So you'd go to the theater and and you'd have this experience of sound design for the first time. It wasn't just a single source that you were hearing. It was um, two sources. A and, um, you know, it, it was all through the film, even in spoken parts. This guy's over here, this guy's over here, and they're talking back and forth, and your head hears this, and wow, that's that's really something. So that was building up the audience. Sound of Music, God, that, that album stayed at the top of the charts for something like three years, or if not at the top, it was always there you know yeah it was it was probably the best-selling record until the album until the beatles came along quite likely and then west side story and south pacific were up there too. The, yeah and the other thing is that the new musicals were being written and, and were a great source of popular songs and jazz material you know west john side coltrane. story yeah and john coltrane does does um, my favorite things from the sound of music which is a really corny song but he heard the modality in it and he goes ooh miles has been messing around with this this is even better yeah probably miles davis was really really pissed off when coltrane records that. he goes i could have done that i could have done that <laughs> but you didn't miles yeah and it and it was a big hit for john coltrane i mean in relative terms but as a well, jazz yeah. album it sold a lot well jazz was still selling quite quite well i, I don't know when uh, lee morgan did the sidewinder 
But um, I think that was the year before, but I could be wrong. No, I think it was the year, maybe the year after. Yeah, after but the Sidewinder was a, was a single. I mean, you don't have to listen to all eight minutes of the composition as, as it is on the album, but it's a catchy melody, and, and the band is up to it. But uh, yeah, there was still Jimmy Smith was having lots of hits with the organ. Yeah, you know he, he was recording hootenanny records. <laughs> and, and one thing, you know, I don't want to bag on you as a rock critic, but rock critics have tended to knock this era as being sort of a dark age or an interregnum between the original explosion of rock and roll and then the British invasion. But there's a lot of really great stuff going oh, on. Oh yeah, oh yeah. There's no question about that. I mean, this was the year that. Um, Guitar rock broke out of Seattle. Um, it, ha- it I don't know how this happened. Um, undoubtedly, somebody's written about it. But the idea of an instrumental combo just playing their own compositions, but not in a jazz context. It, it was rock and roll, but not frantic rock and roll, but something where you could actually play variations on the theme in your solo. And you had um, uh, the Whalers, uh, the Whalen Whalers from uh, Tacoma. Tacoma. I yeah, I was, I was just thinking, uh, um, doing uh, Tall Cool One. And then the Ventures with Walk Don't Run in California. Mm-hmm. No, they weren't from. No, they were from they Seattle. They were from Seattle too. Yeah. Oh my God. And then Paul Revere and the Raiders were doing came with, with like long hair, adapting Rachmaninoff um, with a rock and roll beat. Um, this has always been, been happening around. You know, there there was. Um, well, Dwayne Eddy was a couple years before this, right? Right. Dwayne Eddy down, down in um, uh, Phoenix and Lee Hazelwood uh, producing him, names which would... And then, you know, Bill Justice at Sun with Raunchy kind of might be the first, might be the fountainhead of this stuff. Yeah, but that was fronted by a saxophone. And saxophone instrumentals were, you know, I'd go all the way back to rhythm and blues on Central Avenue in in the 40s. But this music was new. It was, and it was easy to play uh, and the ventures or their management or somebody had the brilliant idea of putting out play along with the ventures records and sheet music so that you could go into it since i mean there was really nothing fancy about these guitars they that leo fender had initially made electric guitars for jazz players as had gibson um but they were um, they weren't used by jazz players, especially the solid bodies. Uh, Fender's first solid body was an experimental model that he called the plank, because it was just it a was board. a plank with with a, a fretboard attached to it, and his interest was the electronics. So, you know, l- learning how to make different sounds with the guitar, which jazz players were not interested in, and yet. Other manufacturers looked at this. People like Dan Electro and um, I forget the, um, uh, well, Stella. Um, cheap People who made cheap guitars went, hey, this is not an acoustic guitar, but we can make cheap guitars that sound good, sound better, and we could probably sell some. So for $79, you could walk into a music store and walk out with a knockoff of a Fender guitar. And that's basically the surf rock which is the name that got associated with this kind of instrumental music, 
this is the American version of Skiffle. This is what put guitars in a million hands. I mean, well, yeah, really... yeah. Except Skiffle is different. Yeah, Skiffle. but I mean, the idea that this is what inspired kids to go buy a oh, guitar. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and the folk craze, because you know, piece, yeah. Tom Dooley is not a challenging song to play. Um, Michael Rowe, the boat ashore, all that kind of stuff. Um, that was one. That was what got acoustic guitars into people's hands, whereas um, the Ventures and company were what put electric guitars in people's hands. And this, well, you know, once you'd played the Ventures songbook, what next? Yeah, and then here come the Beatles and... Yeah, that's coming down the line. But first, you know, you have what's happening in England, which everybody is ignoring, which is skiffle. And that, I think that was... Another phenomenon that came up in 1960, or no, 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 no er, earlier, earlier than that. Is when the skiffle thing yeah, yeah, and and that's how the only records from England that got played were either instrumental uh, or or um, Lonnie Donegan, who was the first big selling skiffle artist yeah, in England. But in America, he was just a novelty guy. Yeah, yeah. Does your chewing gum lose its flavor on the bedpost overnight? Music hall songs. Uh, that he performed, he he was he was a driven performer, and was usually successful. And you look back at him. Oh yeah, he but he had big... no qualms about inserting himself on a festival uh, bill. You know, we didn't book him. Uh, where did he come from? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's easy to get on jump on stage when you got a guitar and a right. That's it. And that's your act. You know. Yeah. So you got your band over your shoulder, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, you, and this is a good opportunity to segue into what's going on in England. And you have a couple of chapters about what's going on in England. Yeah, where, where well, one thing that happened was that somehow, I guess it was, it was in part the nuclear disarmament movement, which was driven by um, political people, some of them communists, most of them not, who believed in involving the folk. And this is the same ideology that's driving Pete Seeger in the United States. Um, and so they, at these marches, there are people singing songs, accompanying themselves on guitars. And um, eventually they decided, you know, they, they discovered that it was fun to sing songs at rallies and, and things, but also, in coffee houses, and so you get the story of the two eyes, which is the um, the big coffee house in uh, Soho, where at the end of a um, of a demonstration, a skiffle band walks into the to this bar, uh, this coffee bar, and says, you know, hey, you got a stage, can we play? And they became immensely popular, and the two guys who were running the coffee bar thought, aha, we're onto something, and so. Not only the two eyes, but a lot of other coffee bars uh, in London started keeping a, a guitar on hand in case somebody wanted to play. And it wasn't just Skiffle, but you know Tommy Steele and that whole prefabricated school of, of rock stars, uh, Marty Wilde and uh, Duffy right. Power, and, and I'm blanking on the names, but they Johnny Gentle, yeah, yeah, Johnny Gentle that came out of. Of, of the two I and Larry Parnes had this whole system where he would rename rename the performers, and and the thing it's not a era that's remembered for aesthetic treasures. Oh no! But it inadvertently kicks the Beatles off because there's an audition in Liverpool for bands to back up 
some right. of the foreign singers, including Johnny Gentle. Well, they went on tour with Johnny Gentle. Yeah, they, they, they toured Scotland, Scotland with him. Yeah, and 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 they get a drummer, which they hadn't had for a while. Right. At, at this point, and 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 that that really triggers the Beatles reactivating as a as a going concern. Right. And and also, also before we leave London, it's important to note that um, Ramblin' Jack Elliot, who was a friend of Woody Guthrie's, um, and, and uh, basically just a, a crazy Jewish bohemian from Brooklyn, uh, he and his wife went to England to busk around, and he was the real deal. He knew a lot of songs that nobody else did, um, some of them by Woody. Um, often, you know, just folk songs, things. He, well, he was a really good performer and he was a, a guitar virtuoso. So I was going to say he, he wouldn't have been a big deal in America, which is not true. He was already a big deal in America, but he was a much bigger deal in London because nobody had ever seen this. It was like the entire Greenwich Village folk scene suddenly was right in front of your eyes. And uh, so he was over there and he brought, I can't remember the guy's name, he brought a friend of his who played banjo over and he liked it well enough that he never went back to America. So here was a, a living seed for, but they didn't have the American folk music uh, canon. They didn't have a, a, a folkways anthology to fall back on, um, but it did stimulate the folk scene. Uh, which, once again, was closely allied with the um, CND, the Committee for Nuclear Disarmament, the Aldermaston March and all that kind of stuff. Um, so Skiffle was born out of that as much as out of the Larry Parnes showbiz thing. And, uh, and yet nobody quite knew what to do with it. Yeah. So that's how you get Lonnie Donegan performing music hall stuff. And, of course, nobody in, in England thought of that stuff as square or, you know, unfashionable. It was just all part of their musical tradition. Yeah, and one band you don't talk about much, but Joe Brown and the Brothers are doing a lot of that musical st type stuff. I'm Henry Eighth, I am, uh, and, and the stuff that... Yeah, Herman I don't Herman's, know these people at all. Yeah, J Joe Brown ends up becoming a... Like, he has a string of hits in England in the early 60s. He ends up becoming one of George Harrison's best friends. He huh. played the ukulele at the concert for George to close the show. And uh, and Herman's Hermits and all those, Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter, and I'm Henry VIII, and I'm, they were just covering Joe Brown stuff that had been a hit huh. just a couple years earlier. Okay, I wasn't aware of him. Yeah, Joe Brown has actually got some fun stuff, and, and is, is well worth checking out. And it was a huge, George Harrison was a huge fan hmm. of, 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 of... I would have thought Paul McCartney myself, but... Uh... No, that was... Uh, I think Paul McCartney liked him and, of course, could quickly pick up the ukulele and play oh, yeah. anything uh, he heard. But So, you know, the, the Beatles are up in Liverpool. They do the skiffle thing. It sort of peters out over 57, 58. Then they get this chance to audition for, you know, what they think is going to be their big break and uh, draft a drummer, so like a 35-year-old guy who works at a bodily plant. Right. <laughs> and, and, and that's a misfortune of being abused physically and verbally by John Lennon for the whole uh, 10 days. You sign up with the Beatles, you get abused by John Lennon. <laughs> Sorry, it's part of the gig. It does seem to be the case. But that that gets them going. And they do this pretty disastrous tour of Scotland, but they're excited about it. They're well, they, they've it. discovered that they can play together and not fall apart. And that... It gives them something to aspire to. Yeah, I bet if we did this more, I bet if we 
kept this going, we'd get better. And they did. They're, 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 yes. Well, they're, well, part of it was the personal chemistry, and part of it was the fact that they had the Jacaranda Club to play in, which is a club one of their friends' mothers had in her house. No, uh, that's not the Jacaranda. That's the Casbah Club. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's Pete Best's mom, Mona Best, had the Casbah. And they played for a while as, a, I think, a four-piece with no drummer there at the Casbah and get in a fight with Mona Best because they didn't want to pay the fourth guy one night when he was sick. Right. And uh, but they, they and they pick up Pete Best later, and uh, Alan Williams was the guy with the Jacaranda. Right, and, right. And, and, and had to deal with Larry Parnes. And he ends up... Uh, stumbling across these clubs in Hamburg, Germany. It's not that big of a, of a reach, really. Um, th- there were regular ship services to Hamburg from uh, Liverpool. But they met at the Two Eyes Club. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, Larry, uh, Alan Williams goes to London to get involved in the scene. And this I can't remember which one of the Hamburg impresarios it was that goes to London to get into the scene, and he meets the guy from Liverpool. Right. Well, see, there was enough... Um, intercourse between Hamburg and, and England that there were a lot of Brits in Hamburg. I, I was astonished. There was a an art show that I, I covered in Hamburg in one of the museums, which was about collectors who subsidized uh, radical art in the early 20th century um, in Hamburg. And I was astonished to find that there were, some of them were bankers who had names like Hans Richardson. Huh. And I asked a friend of mine, who is an Anglo-German, about this. He goes, oh, yeah, there's a huge number of Anglo-German, although they usually tried to use um, German-sounding names so as not to arouse suspicion, because, of course, the British were notorious colonialists, and they didn't want anybody to think that the next stop after India was Germany. You know, but but... There is this big tradition of Anglo-German back and forth. Um, at one point, it became um, imperative for any German artist getting a start in Hamburg to take an English name. So that there was this guy named Freddie Somebody. I remember he had his 50th anniversary concert, and I was seeing all these posters in the subway in Berlin. I'm going, What? But I looked it up, and his real name was, you know, Hans Richter or something. It had to take the, the English name. And so the, the Beatles then famously go to Hamburg. And, you know, Malcolm Gladwell has the whole book, The 10,000 Hours Theory, and he uses the Beatles as one of his examples of if you really work hard, if you put in the practice, you're going to become great. But, you know, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes put in the hours, and yeah. they didn't even get any better. But And and um, so did, uh, oh, what's his name, the, the guy they recorded? Tony Sheridan. Tony Sheridan. I mean, he's still putting in the hours. Yeah, and he, he never, and he was a very gifted guitarist, one of the real uh, best of the first generation of British rockers, easily, but utterly stagnates in Hamburg forever yeah. and ever. Well, you don't, there is a point, and the Beatles reached that point, where you have to jump out of that. I mean, it's like, you know, mutate or die, and... Sometimes you're getting paid enough that you don't really have the motivation to mutate because I can continue living on this money for as long as I get it. Yeah, and that's what some artists did, but the Beatles could not be contained. And one thing that Mark Lewison brings out in his Mammoth uh, Tune In, the Mammoth biography of the Beatles, is the way that the Beatles, being in Hamburg right at that point, they missed the big explosion of the shadows in the British version of instrumental guitar rock. Right. 
Well, but the Shadows were also a a, a sub corporation of Cliff Richard. Yeah, they backed him on this on his early hits. That was Cliff Richard. Well, it, it was it was also his touring band because he had a hit in the United States, and that to them was not only a chance to see the United States, but a chance to go to Manny's Music <laughs> yeah. in New York and buy the hell out of guitars because Manny's always had the best selection of guitars. And you couldn't import Stratocasters to England at the time. Well, you couldn't. Yeah, the, the whole back and forth thing. Yeah, you couldn't. Um, as a commercial, you know, as a music shop, you couldn't buy these things. So uh, early rockers who didn't have Cliff Richard's opportunity, they had to buy German electric guitars, you know, Hofner and Vox and stuff like that. Well, Vox they, is English. It is? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Vox okay. is English. Well, I, uh, Hofner is not. Yeah, Hofner and Paul McCartney's famous fiddle bass, which was a knockoff of a Gibson. Right. But was still not a very good instrument. No, but I he mean, stuck he, with it for he, years. I know, but he had it rebuilt and rebuilt and rebuilt. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, he liked it because it was light and and, and, and also it was visually him. I can't think of anybody else who wasn't imitating the Beatles who used one of those. No, that's a very because it wasn't a very good guitar. <laughs> but Lennon and Harrison pick up Rickenbacker's and Gretsch guitars. Rickenbacker is another, isn't that also no, that's, German? That's American. That's American. Yeah, they were. I think Rickenbacker might have been one of the first to invent. Has a good claim oh, to be the inventor of the electric guitar. That's true. They they inv invented the frying pan, yeah. which was this sort of banjo shaped steel guitar. Yeah, but Lennon picks up a Rickenbacker in Hamburg, and uh, you know the rest is history. Right. Well, it's not as hard to get American stuff. It's a seaport. You know, if they'd been interested in buying African instruments, it would have been just as easy. Yeah. But they weren't. Yeah, and so the Beatles are sort of, I mean, are absolutely in their own weird little pocket. They're obsessed with things like What I Say by Ray Charles, uh, Some Other Guy, which is, a, I think, Lieber and Stoller co-wrote that. Uh, Richie Barrett is that the guy's name uh, I think it's Richie Barrett was the guy who did it it wasn't a hit but they're finding all these weird songs that were not hits in America like Hippie Hippie Shake and some other guy and, and forming their own repertoire right and, and their own a aesthetic. lot of that was due to the London American label which as I always say um, the uh, Montavani helped bring rock and roll to Britain in that he was selling so many, so many records in America. Once again, stereo is implicated here. The the cascading strings of Montavani, which is just a simple overdub technique, so that it sounds like these strings are, you know, do 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 do. Each one of those notes is coming from a different string section. It's not, but it, <laughs> it, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. And you know, Montavani himself. I don't know even what he did on those records but um they were selling buttloads of albums so the dollar versus pound um imbalance was crucial so um london decided they would open up well in their office in new york which was where the montavani albums were coming from they would install this woman to have a liaison with independent record companies and reach out to people like Specialty and Sun and um, Atlantic Atlantic, and everybody else. And as long as they weren't, you know, DECA, which is a British company, or, or Columbia, those, those guys weren't uh, eligible. So she did A&R and she picked these records 
And she didn't, I mean, the company didn't really care if they were going to be hits. It was just, you know, paying some pounds into America for all the dollars that were being shipped overseas. And so there was this London American label in uh, in England with this distinctive dark blue and silver, well, it looked like the London label in America that all the Montevani records had. Yeah. But they were 45s. And you could, you know, as always the case in, in um, record stores back then, you could go into a record store and pick a bunch of stuff and go into a little listening booth and put on earphones and, and listen to the record. And you better believe that a lot of rock and roll kids and very most especially the Beatles took full advantage of this and you know wound up buying a lot of them too yeah I mean I, you're not gonna if you want to perform Long Tall Sally you're not gonna get that in the three minutes it takes in the record store you better lay down your allowance money and take that baby home <laughs> yeah even for quick lenders like the Beatles but the Beatles are sort of a sidetrack for what's going on let's get back to the mainstream in 1960 and Elvis comes out of the army Right. And this is big doings. Well, they didn't really know what was going to happen next with him. And Colonel Tom Parker was fairly sure that he'd just pick up where he left off. And he was pretty much right. Um, there was a big hype about it. Um, there, there was his first appearance after the Army. He got $125,000 to perform on a Frank Sinatra based um television show sinatra had had snarled something about elvis before he went into the army and and yet his daughter uh nancy was a, a fan <laughs> as you know yeah a kid her own age and so uh she she was when he landed back in the united states she presented him with some dress shirts i guess you know wear this when you're on daddy's show and um, so Elvis, he returned, and uh, his first record had sold 1.75 million copies, and it hadn't even been recorded yet. So, yeah, it looked like it was going to be pretty good. And, and there was already a movie that had been made, and all he had to do was plug in his scenes. I mean, they'd gone to Germany and filmed location shots, and, and there were the other actors, and then... You know, there was just bang, 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 and GI Blues was out. Yeah, and 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 they Hill and Range, his publishing company, had had hired writers like Otis Blackwell and and, and Doc Pomus and Mark Schumann. So he had a lot of material and just you know hit the ground running. Goes to the studio, cranking out albums and 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 uh, the the record soundtracks. But he goes in this kind of weird direction, and uh, has him rewrite the ly English lyrics to the old Italian song, Old Sol and Mio. Well, he was um, in the process of being nuts. He had discovered amphetamines in the army, which was, you know, something that all armies, that they were developed for uh, the German armies in World War II, and they were extensively used by air forces to stay awake. It's very important when you're, you know, doing aerial fighting to be awake and conscious and all that kind of stuff. What they didn't look for was the downside, um, you know, possible psychosis and, of course, that horrible crash that happens 
and uh, but Elvis loved it. He he brought back these giant quart jars of amphetamine tablets from Germany. Because hey, this was cool, man. And you know, hanging out to the Memphis Mafia like it was candy. And that you know, reading the Guralnik bios, that's one of the real turning points of Elvis's life and one of the key tragedies because he had been a d dedicated teetotaler. Before oh yeah, that. and Pepsi was like his his far farthest, you know. Yeah. And but that was. Still caffeine. Yeah, and but once that it's given to him by the army, and it's told, you know, and 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 it's presented as medicine, as scientific, you know, he thinks it's okay, and you know, that's the road that leads directly to his early death at forty-two. Uh, yeah, as was his not concentrating so much on the music as on the films, because he was probably making more money from the returns of the films, even though the films got worse and worse and worse, he he would make more money off of a bad movie, which then he could just make another one. Yeah, you well, know? And, and he could and to do that, he would live in California, and he had this big estate out there, and, and, you know, he had his friends hanging around, some of whom began to peel off at about this time because they, they didn't like the direction that he was going in. But he was not even thinking about that, and the colonel was not about to tell him no. Yeah, and the colonel... The colonel's business acumen actually kind of bites him in the ass. Like you said, the movies get worse and worse, and part of the reason was because the colonel kept negotiating bigger and bigger payments for Elvis, right. which necessitated more money for Elvis, less money for the script, less money for co-actors, you know, less money for location shooting, and so the films get aesthetically lazier and lazier and, until he's in, you know, doing the clam. Right, but you know, people, I mean, his old audience stuck with him. And I know that because I've been to the Elvis Memorial celebration in Memphis and seen an entire motel lit up with candles at night, you know, which were middle-aged women. It was a woman from here in Austin who was the head of the largest Elvis Presley fan club in America, um, of which there are, were hundreds. And they all come for this celebration, uh, I guess around the time of his death. To mark the uh, not not his birthday, but his his death date. But yeah, but you're seeing the sort of aesthetic cul-de-sac, artistic cul-de-sac that Elvis gets into around this point. Although you know, Pomus and Schumann write him a mess of blues, and oh yeah, and, he's he's still getting good stuff from them. But eventually, they're getting shut out because they probably want more money too. And you know, why can I do that when I can get some hack? Yeah, in the Brill Building, you know who. Ooh, a contract with Hill and Range? Ooh, that sounds good, you know. Yeah. Never mind that you're no good, but that's that's <laughs> not the problem. Um, and also, this is, once again, the generational change, because those Elvis fans are now in their 30s. And they're... Or, by this point, mid-20s. Well, yeah, but they're, they're not teenagers. Yeah, I know. And teenagers are hungry, and there are more teenagers than there are Elvis fans. Yeah, and if you're... Doc Pomus and Mort Schumann, and and Hill and Range takes a huge cut of say Little Sister that you write for Elvis. But when you write this magic moment for the Drifters, you get to keep a much bigger slice in the pie. Right, exactly. And who's going to get your best stuff? Exactly, and and that's where the vitality in 1960 is is with things like one-off productions, usually rhythm and blues, sometimes quirky things like the Ventures. Um, things that the teenagers want, because there are more teenagers every day. 
And that's going to be the deciding factor in the years to come. Still isn't uh, up to maturity, so we're still not at peak teenager, but um, it's coming. Yeah, and and artists like Pomus and Schumann, you know, This Magic Moment with the Drifters, Benny King singing, this is the Drifters 2.0. Right. They rebuilt the Drifters around the young Benny King, Lieber and Stoller producing. And for me, and a lot of people, I mean, Save the Last Dance for me might be the apex of that. Yeah, that's that's a great song, you know, because um, Doc Pomus is really a Jewish guy from the Bronx, and um, he had polio uh, as, a, as a child and lost a lot of the use of his legs. Uh, but he also was a mammoth blues fan, and so he's invented this name, Doc Pomus, and started showing up at blues clubs and singing and not getting thrown off the stage, which is very important. And all of a sudden, he had black fans. And so in order to do that, to, to get a career going, he, he tried to get a record contract, and he wrote his own material. And so here he was, and then he decided, well, you know, performing is not really getting it. for He never had a decent record contract. His records are incredibly hard to find. Um, but his sister... Uh, who was younger, knew, knew this other Jewish kid named Mort Schumann, and he was a genius with um, melodies. And she said, you know, you, you, should, you should see, you should go talk to him and see what you, and they hit it off, bang, just like that. So here he had songs, that, then they weren't blues songs, but it wasn't blues time anymore. And, and so he had this songwriting partner, and uh, because he he loved to hear what was going on in the clubs, he and his wife would go out to the clubs, and she liked to dance. And um, so this this was the inspiration for the song. You know, you, you can dance with anybody you want, but don't forget who's taking you home. And she never did. And uh, so it's this incredibly romantic, even if you don't know the story, it's an incredibly yeah. romantic song. If you do know the story, it's just amazing. Yeah, and, and in the Doc Pomus documentary, a.k.a. Doc Pomus, they interview Benny King, and he talks about when Doc sang him the song the first time. And you can just tell Benny King was an incredibly sensitive kid, and it just broke his heart. Right. And he put it all into that performance. Right. And, and it's, he was probably just thinking of, of Doc yeah. while he was doing it, you know. He yeah. Was, and, uh, and so, you know, this and, and Palmas and Schumann are just one of several teams at the Brill Building that are, that are cooking around this time. And one kid that's knocking around the Brill Building right now is a young Phil Spector who's had a number one hit with the Teddy Bears, uh, told his mother he's going to Los, going to San, to, dang, going to New York to um, be an interpreter at the United Nations. <laughs> okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, the beginning of this career as an interpreter is showing up at Lieber and Stoller's office in the real building. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm a genius. I can do anything. <laughs> what are you? Seventeen years old? What do you mean? But they, you know, having been teenage geniuses themselves, yeah. okay, kids, show us what you can do. Yeah. First, empty the ashtrays. <laughs> <laughs> but before long, you know, he's playing the guitar uh, on some of their songs and, and co-writes Spanish Harlem with Lieber, I think, mm -hmm. and uh, co-writes uh, with, with Doc Pomus as well. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon he's, he's doing his own productions. Right, uh, the Paris Sisters. He, he's, he's just, you know, 
He's this ball of energy and talent just waiting to get unleashed on the world. He's completely without any uh, ethics, which is something you really need in the music business at this <laughs> yeah. point. And um, he's just determined to make it. And he does. And, and he does. And he's, he's going to explode more in, in uh, 62 and 63. But one thing we haven't, we haven't talked about is the backlash is continuing and... Pa the pa Paola hearings happen. Finally. Yeah. And Alan Freed is, is crushed. Right. The, the problem here is ABC had two major stars, both of whom were involved with Paola. One of them was bringing them in tons and tons of money. The other one wasn't. Because he wasn't, he was more of a fan than he was a businessman, even now. And he was, also had a drinking problem which was uh, really unfortunate and which showed in lack of ambition and a number of other ways. And so when the Paola hearings happened, it was obvious they needed somebody. There was a human sacrifice in the air. Was it going to be Dick Clark with his myriad corporations, which he was quickly dissolving, and his youthful star look on t national television every day of the week. Well, not every day, but Monday through Friday um, and Saturday for the show in the theater. Or was it going to be Al Al Alan Freed, who was a troublemaker and who wasn't as good at covering his tracks? He, did, he had bad advice. His manager was Morris Levy, who was a mobster. You know, no, Alan, this is not the way to go. But... The Congress was out for blood, uh, even though it was, as I as I keep saying, you can't pay a teenager to like anything. You can't pay people to buy records. You can pay DJs to play it, and eventually the kids are going to go to, there's always another rock and roll station or a country station or, or a rhythm and blues station in town, and if you're not playing what I want to hear, I'm out of here, boy. I'm out of here. Yeah, and that's that's true today, even with the way Google and Facebook operate. Google wants to put stuff in front of you that they've been paid to put in front of you, right. but they want to put stuff in front of you that you will click on. Right. And and so it's the the and the congressman didn't get it, and they and they tried to impose rules. You talk about they at one point wanted radio stations to have to announce whenever they played a free record. Well, and the other thing was they wanted them to buy the records, yeah. which was economically impossible and also you know i don't want to use the word artistically but it was artistically impossible because if you don't have a guy from the record company laying this label this this record on on your table and going play this listen to it there's no money changing hands here. He's just saying, this is a record that your audience is going to like. I know because I travel around the country to other stations and we're getting action on this in Pittsburgh. We're getting action on this in Akron. You know, so I, since you're in Cleveland, I think maybe you should. I, I actually got that backwards because undoubtedly the thing would break out of Cleveland instead yeah. of Akron. So, you know, but still, uh and and you need to and there's dozens of these guys and dozens and they've even got they've each got a dozen records every week. 
and and the radio station that was just economically insane for, to expect them to buy and, and scout that one. Well, yeah, and and then and there's also the, the question of the record. If it's a hit, it's going to wear out. You know, you got a 24-hour station. How many times is this record going to get played? Yeah. You know, and, and so it's much easier when the guy comes by on, on Monday or Tuesday to say, oh, and, and, you know, this is such a hit. Give me three more copies of this because, you know, we're, we're, we're just playing the hell out of it. And so the, that was briefly threatened to be imposed, but the record, the radio stations managed to, to lobby and get that undone. So at the, in the end of the day, the payola investigations took out Alan Freed and a bunch of small African-American labels. Well, no. Because I don't think any of those guys like Jocko, I don't think any of them actually got convicted. But they got sh- a lot, got shuttered or fined. I mean, specialty, you talk specialty records. Special, no, specialty was, I, I don't think Art Roop actually got dinged. He just got tired. So I've got that scene in there where he calls Sonny Bono into the room and goes, I'm sorry, this is just exa- this is exhausting and I don't like it anymore. And so he shuts down specialty records and makes Sonny Bono a free agent, which is also important. Um, but he holds on to the, the... He doesn't sell it to anybody because he's already got this idea of investing in Los Angeles real estate. So Art Roop, who is still alive, as far as I know today, um, is a rich man, very rich. From L.A. real estate, not from Right, but not, but not from Little, Little Richard. Yeah, and so... Um, but you've got other independent record companies that are getting it together and Barry Gordy and Motown right this is their big breakthrough year with Shop Around which is finally the mammoth hit that he manages to hold on to right he's been he's been having to cede his previous hits to well his sister's label Anna uh, in Chicago and sometimes he's licensing stuff to United Artists and he wants it all for himself, and he deserves it all for himself because he's putting in a lot of sweat, and he's not making anything back at all. And so uh, he knows he can count on Bill Robinson because he's one of his best friends, and he's also a an unimaginably huge talent, you know, which Barry has managed to get just through friendship. Yeah. You know, because Smokey wants to make it too, so he wants to see that his friend is the channel through which he makes it. Well, to me, it's very similar to Lennon McCartney or Pomus and Schumann. I mean, talent draws talent. Right. And you know that Barry Gordy, as a good songwriter himself, could tell that Smokey was a great songwriter. Right. And and, and the best is yet to come, too. Yeah. and But they also signed Mary Wells, who comes right. as a songwriter. I didn't know that. Yeah. She comes in with her mother and pitches a song for, I forget who... I think it was for Jackie Wilson. Yeah. And and Barry goes, oh, you got any more of those? And by the way, let me hear you, you know, because she's singing it. And he's, mm, you got a pretty good voice, girl. So there's another one through the door. Yeah. A- and um, you know, he's got, he's still got Barrett Strong, um, who's not making hits. But once he's building a stable. Very, oh, very slow. Well, you tell the story about how they'd originally done Shop Around as a B-side for Barrett Strong, and it you know, didn't do anything as a B-side. And one night in the middle of the night, he gets inspiration, let's do this in a faster tempo, calls Smokey and the Miracles, calls the Funk Brothers, gets everybody together. Everybody just happens to be awake at 2 in the morning. Well, they were probably but, just coming home from the club. That's true, the Funk Brothers. Uh, you know, and probably Smokey and the Miracles, too. Yeah, that's, that's a good thought. Yeah, and so, and then boom, and he was right. And, yeah. And that... Uh, you know, I mean, one thing 
about reading this book and thinking about this stuff, there's a lot more that goes into it. And people like Barry Gordy, who are able to recognize this is the right song for this artist, and this is the right tempo, this is the right key. These are really subtle things that make a huge difference. It's true. It's true. And people are, are too star-focused to really get that these days. They don't realize the amount of work that goes into three minutes of pleasure. Yeah, and three minutes of magic, if you want to call it that. And uh, another record company that's getting off the ground is Stax Records. Right, which is, which is this weird thing of a country fiddler and his uh, who actually works for a bank and his sister who also works for a bank and one of her things at the bank is that she's able to pick hit records and so she goes to the record wholesaler and buys records and sells them to the other employees in the bank um, and they think she's a genius and her, her son uh, has a band well, actually, he didn't have a band. Um, Steve Cropper had a band. And then he meets Packy Axon and goes, Well, my mother has a recording studio. And suddenly Packy is their best friend. <laughs> <laughs> and then the band, and, the, and he talked about how the, you know, Cropper and Duck Dunn were already playing around together, but uh, uh, Booker T comes in the door. Right. Uh, on the very first session that's held in the new Stacks recording. Uh, studio, which is an old movie theater that they're um, putting together. And, uh, yeah, they need a baritone sax. And so this kid walks in from high school. Somebody knew him. And on his way out the door, he he tells Cropper, oh, and uh, by the way, if you ever need a piano player, I play piano too. Yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the rest, the rest is history. Another, Booker T. Jones, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, Booker T. and the MGs uh, get cooking. And, uh, Another artist that's that's cooking this year is Jerry Butler with his partner Curtis Mayfield. Butler has left the impressions, gone solo, but he's still working with Mayfield. Right, because Mayfield's got the songs, he's got the production know-how. Yeah, and the and the song "He Don't Love You Like I Love You," which I knew was a Tony Orlando crapper from oh, the seventies. Really? Yeah, Ooh, they boy, did. A, I was lucky to miss that stuff. In the yeah, 70s. and uh, and and then, <clears throat> but here in the Jerry Butler version, it's just the 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 way he holds back on the vocal was what attracted me. I mean, yeah, he's from the church, but he's one of these restrained guys who you kind of listen to and think, is he going to bust out or not? And usually he doesn't because he's got so much power. And that kind of quiet power, is that's why they called him the Iceman. Nope. It was like a singing. He was so cool. He didn't need to bust out. Yeah, and uh, and and yet he and Curtis Mayfield are both going to bust out through the course of the season. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Um, it's just, well, they're they're waiting for VJ Records to get going, um, uh, much, because that's who they're recording for. Yeah. Um, they they um, VJ is still primarily a blues label, and selling most of the um, the records via uh, Jimmy Reed, who is an unimaginably large blues. I mean, Chess really blew it. He recorded for Chess. Well, you know, Jimmy Reed's one of these things. You, you, we talked about this before, but you know, there's 
documentation of John Lennon and arguing with Mick Jagger and Brian Jones about not liking Jimmy Reed. Right. And apparently the Chess Brothers had the same response. Yeah, I guess he's one of those you get it or you don't. I always did, so I don't see the problem. The other thing that Jimmy Reed was doing was selling to the folk audience, even though he was an electric player. that They heard something there, and I guess they were you know, ashamed that they had this impulse to like him when they weren't buying Muddy Waters records, but they liked Jimmy Reed just fine. There's something about Jimmy Reed. I mean, if if it clicks with you, it's obvious why it's great. If it doesn't click, you're just going, the guy can only sing a few, you know, he's got a very limited range. He plays basically all the songs in one key, the same three chords. Right. It's always a mid-tempo shuffle. And if you get into it, the nuances are very rich and, and you keep building. But yeah, but if you're, if you're just listening superficially and it doesn't grab you, I can sort of see why. But he, he was he was a big seller and a big attraction on, on college campuses with the folk crowd. And he, he put, they're putting out albums called The Real Folk Blues of Jimmy Reed. Yeah, they were doing that with Muddy Waters around there. Well, that was a, there was a Real Folk Blues thing on chess, uh, but that came later. That, that came about... Um, 65 or 66 because I, I bought I them all yeah <laughs> well, you know we we I kind of skipped over the the new wave of blues artists from 59 that you talk about in your chapter and I wanted to get to this because it's interesting to me that blues is a format that continues to this day I mean you know you see this second wave of electric blues artists come out in the late 50s Otis Rush and well, that's the, the west side as opposed to the south yeah, side Magic sound. Sam and others but to me, it's just fascinating that what is it about blues that this form is basically undying? I mean, it's a very simple format, but it's, you know, you don't see this with doo-wop, for example. I right. Doo-wop is a, a form that had its time, accomplished some great well, things. Well, and it, and it, but it metamorphosed into, I mean, you, you, the Manhattans had a career, the Dells had a career well into the 80s. Yeah, and and boy bands and things like that are basically yeah yeah descendants. So, of so yeah, that, but but blues, the guitar fronted blues from Chicago, is I don't understand it. It's an anomaly how much how important that all was, and, and I guess there there with this rivalry between the South Side and the West Side of Chicago, the the two different um, basically families of artists. Um, it lasted a lot longer than you would have expected, and and then it segued into the folk era. So a lot of these people had careers even after black audiences uh, stopped supporting them. And then in the like the nineteen sixty eight British blues revival, right? People jump into the verge. And it's also interesting you read Buddy Guy. And he'll talk about how in the clubs he was ripping it with feedback and letting loose on the guitar, but Leonard Chess would not record stuff like that. Right. And so, you know, Buddy Guy is somebody who looks at Jimi Hendrix, say, and is like, you know, I could have been ahead of this guy. Right. And, and it's interesting in that you have actual black teenagers buying these records. You know, something like you mentioned Buddy Guy, the first time I saw the blues, you know, it was just a mammoth seller with teenagers. Hmm. It's kind of, you know, a basic rule that teenagers don't buy their parents' music. But black teenagers, it turns out, are different. And we'll see that with soul music. 
Cool. And I think that's a good a spot as any to wrap this up. We'll be hearing more from Phil Spector in the Brill Building in 61 and 62. And we'll talk about that on the next episode. We will, indeed. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll be back with Ed Ward to discuss 1961 and 1962, years he calls quiet, when Motown and Sachs, the coming revolutionaries who would shake the 60s, were still struggling to get their financial feet under them. Be sure and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com to access the YouTube playlists and hear the music we're talking about. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more about the history of rock and roll, buy Ed's book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, 1920 to 1963, published by Flatiron Books, available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and anywhere fine books are sold. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.